Let us turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7, as we continue our study in the Heidelberg Catechism, the second uh, Lord's Day. And we'll use Romans 7 as our text for uh, tonight, explaining what the law does in diagnosing our sin. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Let us pray. We come before your word with our reverence and humility, without which we cannot understand it. And so please give us the illumination of your spirit work, conviction, and repentance, and then reassure us by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the movie Snow White, one of the most memorable lines is, Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? And one of the reasons it strikes us so well is because it taps into something that we all desire some word of confirmation that I am better than someone else. That's why when you're down and you need to be elevated, the tendency is to go to those voices, whether it's books or friends or movies, to say, you're fine, you're attractive, you're popular, you're A-OK. Mirror, mirror, On the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And yet the mirror, as you remember, answers the evil queen. It's not her, it's Snow White. And she becomes furious and wants to destroy Snow White. Because if you live comparing yourself to others, then you will want to eliminate the competition so you can be number one. The other way to do it, perhaps is to destroy the mirror itself because it's telling you something that you weren't asking it to reveal to you. I want to hear that I am attractive, that I'm beautiful, that I am good. But if the mirror says no, then you want to turn away and perhaps throw the mirror away as well. God comes to us with a mirror, a perfect mirror that reflects who you really are. Who you really are in relationship to him. The law, that perfect law of liberty as James 1 describes it. And it shines the light upon you and reveals everything about you. And it says from the very beginning, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no carved images. You shall take my name and protect it. You shall keep my day holy. You shall honor your father and mother. And in all these commandments, which are the specific ways in which that law comes to us, we are directed to the fact and the basis of our creation, that we are not made for ourselves, but for God. He owns us. We belong to him. And so he has every right to command us to serve him with all that is in us. But when that law is held up before us, what is our response? As sinners, it's certainly not, yes, I want to do your will. I'm willing and eager. 
No, it's to turn away and to say, I don't want to look there to see what God's will really is. Because this means that I will have to admit and confess that I am guilty, that I fall short of his glory. How do you look in the mirror of God's law? Paul holds up a mirror for us in Romans 3, and it's a real head-to-toe description of humanity in sin. Their eyes don't seek for God. No one looks for him. No one understands. Their mouth, their tongue, is filled with poisonous fruit and the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, spitefulness, hatred. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who you really are. It's a hard-hitting truth. And yet it's also a heart-searching truth at the same time. Because the law, like a big light, if you have a dirty room, you can dim the lights to uh, deny what is really there. But if a light shines in it, it exposes every nook and cranny. You're a mess. You're not what you ought to be. That's what the law tells sinners. It searches and probes our very hearts, and it, what it finds is truly ugly and full of defilement. This is what the Catechism says in question three, which is printed there in your bulletins. From where do you know your misery? From the law of God. Now, of course, originally in man's uprightness and perfect nature, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, the law was only meant to reveal the ways in which man should walk. There was no antagonism. There was no animosity between God's word and our nature and our response. But once sin enters the picture, man wants to live in denial by making his own fig leaves, in being a fugitive and trying to run from God, knowing that he is right to judge and call us to account. And man desires to live in its own darkened condition, not to see the scabs and warts that are really there. But God is gracious because the law searches us and tells us who we really are, and we need to know that because this is the way we will flee to Christ. Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician. You don't go to the waiting room of a doctor or have a major surgery if you're whole and you're fine. But if you need, know you need help and you need healing, you go to the doctor. And so we come to Jesus as those who know our guilt and our shame, those who know our transgressions 
are ever before us. So let's see in our text tonight how the law does define that source of our misery. And the purpose of it is to drive us to our Savior. Well, first of all, the law centers on the Lord. Notice in Romans 7, verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. There is no deficiency when it comes to the law. There is no problem with what God says. In fact, that's one of the main points Paul is trying to make, isn't he? Verse 7, he says, is the law sin? No way. It is perfect, just like God is perfect. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. As one of my professors used to say, God doesn't have bad breath. Whatever he speaks is absolutely pure, like gold refined by silver seven times. Whatever he says is solid like a mountain, straight as an arrow. But as the law comes to sinners, it still can be taken and misinterpreted by our rebellion. This, I think, is part of what Paul's purpose is here, is to show the law's true nature, because it has been mishandled. There are two particular ways, I think, in which it can be mishandled. That, firstly, to fail to see the inner purpose of the law, and secondly, to fail to realize its perfect standard. Firstly, its inner purpose is the love of God. Question number four, what does the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us in some, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the very core and heartbeat of the commands of God. And yet there's a way to view the law that's purely externalistic. That it's just a bunch of regulations. Sort of like the IRS tax code or the highway rules. As long as I stay within the boundaries and play by the rules of the game, I'll, I'll be fine. And so in that sense, it only addresses our behavior. Some of you who are perhaps in law enforcement know this to be true, because when you go and give someone a citation, you don't ask them, you have, uh, why have you failed to love me and to uh, honor me? No, it's about keeping in accord with the written rules. And yet with God's law, you cannot separate love from its fulfillment. To divorce the purpose of God in the love of God as we fulfill them. That's why Paul himself says about his particular sin, he would not have known it if it had not been for the law. Verse 7, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. Now you have to think about this because he knew he was desiring the goods of others perhaps, the abilities of others, the wife of others perhaps, but it wasn't coveting from his perspective. In fact, it might not have been all that wrong from his perspective. And in that sense, we could see why that's the case. Simply from a consumerist model, We should just live so we are self-satisfied in our uh, acquisitiveness. 
Coveting is fine. Isn't that the basis of so much uh, of life in the world? I want just what he has. So I'm going to chase it down. And so if it's simply man's rules we're talking about, that's not wrong. And yet God's searchlight and law comes to us and addresses not, again, simply external behavior, but even the heart motive, coveting. It's a sin of the mind, of the will, of the heart. It's a sin against God because it's loving something other than God or more than him. Look over with me at Colossians chapter 3, where a very interesting statement is made. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, the Ten Commandments are not ten sort of separate rules, but they're all like a seamless web bound together. He says, covetousness is a form of idolatry. Why? Because to desire Something that a neighbor has for yourself is actually to complain against God's providence. It's to make that thing an object of worship. That it might give you some form of satisfaction. But the law comes in and says, you shall not covet. And so Paul is able to see his desire for what it really is. A failure to love God as he ought and deserves to be loved. The second way to pervert the law is to fail to realize it is a perfect standard. Now here, the Pharisees are a good example of making the law manageable and keepable. Because, of course, they focused on the things you could count and quantify. Take a little bit of cumin and this spice and Give this particular amount. Put this sort of coin in the coffer. Spend this time praying before on the streets. Wear these sort of clothes. Eat these sorts of foods. And of course, all of them, for them, became like a checklist. I've done it. I'm good. And yet when Jesus calls them out and says, You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Love, mercy, and faithfulness. They should have been convicted. The rich young ruler, I think, is really a stunning picture of this because Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all these things from my youth. I'm fine. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all you have and come follow me. And he can't. Why? He loves his possessions too much. What is Jesus obliquely bringing before him? You shall not covet. He was putting his own wealth, his own riches, ahead of Christ's claim on him. And so in this way, he had fallen short, and yet he did not see it. God's law is indeed his glorious law meant for his 
glory. His law, in fact, defines his righteousness. It defines not only what he wants for us, but how he is himself. You shall not murder because God loves life. He created life. You shall not commit adultery because God loves marriage. In fact, Christ is married to his church. So in all these ways, God's law centers on him and his holy character. And the demand of this law is not to be lowered. It's not to be minimized or compromised in any way. It's supposed to be driven home to our hearts. This is what sin is. Yes, any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. But in that, to fail to give him glory, to love him with all of our being. That's the failure of sin. As Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But secondly, then, the law unmasks our sin. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Namely, I would not have known that my life was full of covetousness and deceit. Now, here's really the subtlety of sin. It dresses itself in camouflage. There is this abnormality and disorder that we all feel. And sometimes, more than others, we are acutely aware of it, and yet we can't put a finger on it, just like there's a pain in your body and you don't know its source and you're trying to track it down. Why can't you diagnose yourself and your condition? Because, as Jeremiah says, the heart, which is the wellspring of life, is actually the wellspring of deceitfulness. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so we're looking at ourselves, thinking we're seeing straight, yet our eyes are distorted, and yet we don't know it. We need another source to bring that true diagnosis, because sin never goes by its own name. It says, come, I will show you knowledge, or pleasure, or fulfillment. That's what Satan did, didn't he, in the garden? Did God really say this? And then he severed the relationship between sin and death and says, you will not surely die. And that voice continues to try to tempt us away. And yet the law comes in and says, no, this is sinful. This is truly wickedness. Romans chapter 1. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God, as it were, opens the sewer gate, the manhole cover, and says, look inside what's really going on in your hearts, and in humanity. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. A very sobering diagnosis. And yet a true one because it's the light of God's word that defines these things in relationship to his own character. Sin is found to be truly sinful because of the law. In fact, he will say, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this is a difficult passage. In particular, what does he mean in verse 8 and 9? Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Here is, he's writing something that a Pharisee could never write. Because the Pharisaical conception is very simply, the law is a stepping stone to righteousness. It will help the sinner achieve to the perfection that God requires. And yet Paul stunningly says, No, the law actually makes sin worse. It shows it for what it really is. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. If you go into the surgery room, the bright lights expose all the scabs, all the disease. And yes, the law can even open that up and show you what's happening. And I think Paul here is saying in particular, the law for Israel, the law under Moses had the effect of throwing the sin of the world into sharp relief, showing its True and devastating colors, showing it for what it really is. When Israel received the law, no sooner does Moses come down the mountain, but the tablets are shattered because they are committing the very idolatry that the law forbids. The law does not in any way resolve their sinful nature or alleviate it, but rather exposes it, highlights it, unmasks it. The law does that job. But it's not the law's fault, or we cannot blame it, because it is, again, good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, it was sin. I've heard an illustration that I think is helpful in this case, that if you plow up a field, before you plant. And as a result of your plowing, weeds come up out of the ground. Is it the plow's 
fault. No, the ground was bad to begin with. There are weeds already in it. But the law, as it were, plows up what's already latent in mankind. So that's what Paul means in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It actually provoked him to do more. You know this if you've ever told a child, don't take that. And they'll look at you, and then they'll look at what you said not to take, and they'll do it. Why? Because your saying it sparked their rebellion. The most famous example, of course, is Augustine, I think, who steals pears. He doesn't even like them, but he knows he's trespassing. He knows he's doing wrong. Why? Because his heart is rebellious and delights in evil rather than good. But the law unmasks all that down to the very motivation of our heart. Showing sin to be sin. We have to accept God's diagnosis for us if we're going to accept his cure. That's the point, I believe, of what Paul is saying. Because lastly, the law underscores our inability. Through the law, I thought I would live. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul, as he puts himself in the place of Adam and Israel, tries to justify himself, as all of Israel did uh, in general, as uh, he says in uh, Romans 9, verse 31, that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. They try to walk this way to be Righteous when God had done it to drive them to Christ. And so Paul is at pains to explain the profound inability to do what the law says. Verse 15 and following. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I want, I agree with the law. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. An indictment, yes, on himself, but on everyone who tries to achieve righteousness through the law. Why? You can go on the most disciplined diet, undergo the most uh, rigorous exercise routine. And try your hardest. I'm going to live according to God's commandments without exception. You take that burden upon your shoulders and you are taking in sin a burden that cannot be fulfilled. Why? Your nature is corrupt. And to tear one aspect of the law is to tear a seamless web which means whoever falls short in one aspect, as James says, breaks the whole thing. Paul says, I could not do it as hard as he tried. And remember, he was zealous. He was religious about this, as 
a Pharisee, and yet he finally comes to the conclusion, verse 23 and 24, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. That's the conclusion God desires you to come to as he reveals the law. We really are this rebellious. You really are this depraved and corrupt, he is saying. And from that point then, what will you do? Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? As it were, a praise that God has zeroed in on who he really is. This is what you really need to humble yourself before me, the Lord is saying to him and to us. And then from that place to realize that we are in sinking sand as we then call upon him, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For, as in Romans 8.3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law shuts the door on any attempt on our part to achieve standing before God in ourselves, in our own works. And it opens the door In the gospel, God opens the door to solve our plight by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. As one reformer has written, Christ is the mirror in whom we may and whom we must behold our righteousness. Look into that mirror and find life. Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord, for your direct word, for your unambiguous word uh, to us, and for driving us to see our need and to see what you have provided in your Son, the perfect law keeper and the one who has borne our curse. In all these things we pray, O God, that you might indeed forgive us, and that you might continue to renew us by your Holy Spirit. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.